Good morning, Vaughn Forest Church. As Chad mentioned, my name is Adam Mitchell, and I am just really, really happy to be with you this morning, to be worshiping with you, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to help launch this sermon series over the next four weeks called Game Plan. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're launching this new series. If you would, take a copy of God's Word, your copy of God's Word, and go to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're gonna be this morning is we're gonna talk about the church. I asked the early, uh, the, the 9.30 service if, if they would do this for me, and I'm gonna ask you the same thing. Um, just a request for you to pray for me as I preach this morning. <clears throat> My mom, um, and look, I, I know, I don't want this to be weird. Like I know, like you don't know me and I don't know you. We're just meeting each other, but I'm about to go like real, like deeper than you might expect, but uh, this is for a prayer request, just that you would pray for me over the next 30 minutes or so, because, so my mom passed away um, last October after a 13-month battle with pancreatic cancer, and I preached her uh, funeral service. What I didn't realize, because this year, all of 2023, I've been doing a good bit of guest preaching, so, um, you know, like the guy who just kind of parachutes in on a Sunday and then preaches... Um, that's what I've been doing a lot this year. What I didn't realize, every single time that I've preached this year, it's been just a very hard thing to do, especially like, like walking from back there to right here. It's like, it's like my mind is just freaking out going, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. So please pray for me as we look at God's word. And I promise you that I've, as I've walked this week preparing for what I'm gonna preach today, I've been praying for you. And so I'll just ask that you pray for me right now. I want us to think about this as we look at this game plan. Think about this. How many of you are college football fans? Just raise your hand. Show me. I mean, it's, look, we're in Alabama, right? So we're college football fans. Just in general, we are. Um, I love college football. My favorite team uh, that will remain unnamed is about 50 miles east of here. Um, and my daughter actually goes, my oldest daughter, I've got four daughters, my oldest daughter is about to be a sophomore at Troy, and so she is a Troy Trojan, and so that's where my money goes, so I'm also a Troy Trojan, uh, which they killed it last year, and hopefully they can do the same again this year. But as college football fans, uh, we became aware probably this last week that it was the start of fall camp which means that the college football season is right around the corner. Man, that's good news, isn't it? We've been waiting so long. It's finally back. And think about this. As, as they prepare, they go through the weeks leading up to the season, as they get ready for this first game, coaches are gonna do something that they always do. They're gonna prepare a game plan. And if you think about it, when they prepare a game plan, when they're putting that all together, they don't include in the game plan every single thing that they could possibly do. They don't include every play in their playbook. They focus on what they believe as coaches will put their team in the best position for success in that particular upcoming game. They form a game plan. And as it concerns us, as it concerns you, Vaughn Forest Church, listen, we know this. We live in a busy world. You have lots of options, don't you? 
the demands on our schedule. They can create chaos if we let them. So from time to time, it's just wise to refocus our thoughts and plans, to recenter our lives around what really matters. So what this game plan series is, it's a sort of preemptive strike against the hectic nature of our lives and schedules. It's a way to remind ourselves of a few important things so that you can make wise, godly decisions when all the options come flying your way, and they will. School, sports, work, recreation, all of that. The options are endless for us. And so today, in this series, Game Plan, we're gonna start by looking at the church. And I want you to understand something real quick. As we look at the church, this is less about me simply telling you to go to church. It's more about me reminding us who we are as the church. So this morning, as we consider the church, we're gonna do that in Acts chapter two, verses 22 through 47. We're gonna see three main characteristics of the life of the church. I'm just gonna give these all away right now. The first one is this, the foundation of the church. The second is the function of the church, and this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. And then third, we'll see the fruit of the church. So diving right in, we'll see first of all in Acts 2, 22 through 41, we'll see this. The foundation of the church is the gospel. Now I'm not gonna read it, but just let me summarize these verses and what happens in Acts chapter two, verses 22 through 41. Because here we have Peter, the Apostle Peter, who stands up to preach the sermon that the Lord would use to give birth to the church. It's where the church would come from. And his emphasis in this sermon is on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He highlights the lordship of Jesus and his status as Messiah, namely that Jesus, the Son of God, was the chosen one who would redeem us and save us. And more specifically, he would do this by being nailed to the cross and dying. So what we see in that is that because of his death, we, you and I, have life. That's what it would take to rescue us. But that's not all that Peter says here, is it? He goes on to say this, that God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Now this presents a very great difference between Jesus and us, doesn't it? Because the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We haven't done what we were made to do. We have fallen short of God's glory. And then he goes on to tell us in Romans 6 that the payment for this sin is death. So you and I, because of our sin, deserve death. Jesus, on the other hand, being the sinless Son of God, didn't deserve death. Yet, because of his great love for us, he died in our place. And then, because of his sinlessness, his holiness, his perfection, we find that death had no claim on him because he didn't deserve death. And so death had to give him back. That's good news. 
That's really good news. Death couldn't hold Jesus. It had to give him back. So what we find is that for all of us who turn away from our sin, who repent of our sin, who trust in the finished work of Christ, we become a people of the resurrection. What that means is we are transferred from darkness into light, from death into life. Church, brothers and sisters, we are a people who are formed and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is our firm foundation. And I want this morning just to encourage you to remind each other of that constantly. We need to be reminded of the gospel constantly, of what Jesus has done for us. We all kind of tend in our nature toward works and works righteousness. And we constantly need to be reminded that Jesus has saved us through his death and resurrection. May we never grow bored with hearing the gospel message. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, used to share this news, this gospel message with his church every single week to the point that church members ask, can't we move on to something else? Do you have to share this every week? And his response was, I share it every week because every week you forget it. And don't we so easily forget it? And we need to be reminded that the gospel is our foundation. And so what we've seen here is this game plan series that we're in, we're starting with the church, but when you look back a little further, you see that the church starts with the gospel. And it's so critical that we understand who God is and what he's done before we understand rightly what we are to do. God's grace, listen to me, brothers and sisters, God's grace always precedes good works. Your good works flow from God's grace, from the gospel itself. The foundation of the church, the foundation of Vaughn Forest is the gospel now that we've looked at that, looked at our foundation, let's look next. And this is going to be where we'll spend most of our time. So, y'all, quit. You're slowing me down. Let me keep going, all right? The second function of the church. The function of the church. We'll see it in Acts 2, 42 through 46. This function that we're going to talk about describes how we ought to live because of the gospel. There's four functions that we'll see that are kind of laid out in these verses, 42 through 46. The first one that we see is in verse 42, and it's this, mutual devotion. And you'll see as we walk through this, this word mutual, you'll see it several times. There's this running theme that you find throughout the book of Acts, that you find throughout this passage, this idea of mutuality. All of the, all of the one another's that we see in the New Testament, that's what this is talking about that we are to be a unified body of believers. The idea that what we do, we do together. And what we find here, first of all, in verse 42 is mutual devotion. Look at what this verse says. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So it says, they, well, who are they? 
They are those who heard that first sermon that Peter preached and at the end of his preaching, they came to him, says they were cut to the heart and they come to him and they say, what do we do? What do we do with this message that we just heard? Because Peter preaches the person and work of Jesus, but he also preached their guilt. And Peter calls them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And verse 41 says that that day about 3,000 were added to them. So the church starts off at 3,000 plus new believers. That's who they were. And these new believers in this early church, this barely even started church, devoted themselves. It says they were devoted. That word devoted is a word that means to stand beside, to endure or to persevere in something. A number of years ago, I saw a church sign that said this. It said, try Jesus out. If you don't like him, the devil will always take you back. That's terrible theology, y'all. Because that's not how the gospel works, is it? We don't try Jesus out. You don't put him on like you're trying on an outfit. Jesus is not to be taste tested. You don't see if he fits. We don't fit Jesus into us. We form our lives around him. We bow down to him. We devote ourselves. This is, this is the idea of commitment. They are committed to something. And what do we find them committed to as they bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ? We find them devoted to the apostles' teachings. Now, what were the apostles' teachings? The, the apostles were teaching the word of God. And we find that these earliest believers were devoted to the word of God. Are you devoted do you stand beside? Do you endure in God's word? Listen, I can promise you this. For every single one of us in here, we are being discipled by something. Discipleship is always happening. Now, you can either be discipled in and by the word of God. You can let it be your primary source of communication for letting you know how you are to live. Or... You can be discipled by the world. And listen, let me just tell you this, because this is just, a, just a, a prominent thing in our culture today. Social media is a terrible discipler, okay? But it does disciple us. It does teach us. And how much time are we spending scrolling and liking and hearting and I guess we repost on Twitter now. I just called it its old name. We spend so much time on these platforms and they're communicating something to us and they're working to form us and shape us. But as the church, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we must be devoted to God's word. It should be the primary communicator for how we are to think and live. Are we devoted to it? Secondly, it says they were devoted to the fellowship. Perhaps you've heard this word before, koinonia. It's just the idea they were devoted to one another. Like they liked each other. They wanted to be around each other. Listen, if you are a member of Vaughn Forest, your church needs you. 
Your church, you need your church and your church needs you. Perhaps you're here as a visitor, you've been thinking about joining Vaughn Forest. Let me just say it this way. The church needs you, needs your presence. There's so many demands on your time and schedule, but I'm pleading with you, devote yourselves to this fellowship, which means this, show up, be here, be here. And I know, look, to be fair, there are providential hindrances that keep us from being in a certain place at a certain time. And sometimes that means you can't be here. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is this. Think of it this way. Let the times that you're not here be less than the times that you are here. Because we were designed for relationship. We were designed to be together. And listen, what you're doing right now, even just being in this place, is one of the most countercultural things that you can do. Because you're showing up and going, this is who I am. And this is where I want to be. And we're gathering to do something that's bigger than us. We were worshiping the risen Lord Jesus. Be devoted to the fellowship. And it says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, nobody fully agrees on exactly what this is talking about. Is this a reference to the Lord's Supper? Is it a reference to a common meal? Is it a reference to both? Scholars differ on it. Personally, I think it's referencing both. But at the very least, it has a familial connotation. It's about family. It displays the fact that in a very real sense, we've been brought together by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus to be family. You and I, who've trusted in Christ, are brothers and sisters. We're family. That's who we are. That's what Christ has done for us. And listen, we all know this. You think about a couple of thousand years ago at this point, it was a very intimate thing to have someone into your home. But in... Things have changed since then, but it's still similar, isn't it? Like, it, there is significance to you inviting someone into your home. There is something about that, to sit around the dinner table with somebody, even if it's a stranger, because don't we do more than just sit there in silence and eat? The eating is an important part of it, and we love to eat, right? But we're doing something. We're relating to someone else when we do that. And there's something that is, that is intimate, that is significant about that. And it says they were devoted to that very thing, to going, we are going to be family to one another. So it's not just that we're fellowshipping and that we're gathering together. We're also recognizing something about the relationship that we have with each other. And then it says next in this mutual devotion that they devoted themselves to prayer. When you look in Acts chapter one, after Jesus tells his disciples that, hey, you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and he tells them right before that, he's like, hey, now wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Wait. Don't go yet. Wait. And so we find 120 people in an upper room and you know what they're doing while they're waiting? 
because they don't know exactly what this is all going to look like, how it's all going to go down. Do you know what they're doing? They're praying. They're praying. And what we find them doing after the church is born, we find them devoted to prayer. Vaughn Forrest, if the gospel is the foundation of the church, prayer is the fuel. Prayer is the fuel. I get it, I'm mixing metaphors a little bit here, but just, just run with it, okay? The gospel is the foundation. Prayer is the fuel. There's something that happens when we pray that I don't even fully understand. Only, I only know that God has designed it to be this way, that when we will gather in earnest prayer and cry out to God, it ignites his heart to act on behalf of his people. Why it happens that way, I don't know other than just to say that's the way God wants it. That's the way he's made it to be. When you and I, if we will devote ourselves to prayer, we will see God move. There are far too many prayerless churches. Far too many. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, I pray because I can't help myself. Because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. Prayer is one of the greatest ways for you to say, I don't know. I don't know. It makes me think on King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible because what happens in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 is you find the Moabites, the Ammonites, together with some of the Meunites came to fight against Jehoshaphat. In verse two of 2 Chronicles 20, it says, people came and told Jehoshaphat. In other words, he doesn't know yet they tell him a vast number from beyond the dead sea and from edom has come to fight against you they are already in hazazan tamar that is in gedi now the point being is they come to jehoshaphat and recognize full-on that we have been caught flat-footed we're not ready for this and this deadly army we can see them and they're marching toward us to put us out to do away with us altogether. And so what we find in verse three is something that doesn't, shouldn't shock us at all. Verse three, Jehoshaphat was afraid. Well, of course he was. His death is imminent, along with that of his people. But he doesn't muster his army. He doesn't gather his leaders to develop some sort of battle plan. Look at what he does. Jehoshaphat was afraid and he resolved to seek the Lord. The very first thing he does, he says, I got to pray. <laughs> I got to talk to God about this. And then when you look at his prayer, it goes a little something like this, like he recognizes God for who he is. And he recounts the deeds of the Lord in the past. He says, God, this is what you've done before. And he's doing that as if to say, God, we really need you to do that now too. We really need you to come through. Or otherwise, we're finished, we're done. He says, we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. And then listen to what he says. And my wife, April, and I have gone back to this this statement, this sentence, numerous times over the years. Look at what Jehoshaphat says. He says, we do not know what to do, but we look to you. Is that, is that what your life looks like? That's what I mean. Prayer is one of the greatest ways for us to say, I don't know. 
I can't do it. I can't figure it out. But God, we look to you. We trust you. Can we be devoted to that? Devoted. This devotion to God's word, to the fellowship, to being family, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then the second function that we see in verse 43 is mutual wonder. Verse 43 says that everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. They were filled with awe, this idea of reverent fear. Of It's kind of like, God, I'm glad that you've drawn me near. I'm glad that you've brought me into the family, but I still recognize that you're way different than me. That you, are, that you are bigger, that you are mightier, that you're holier than I am. But look, there's this, there's this reverent fear that takes place in part because they're seeing the work of this big, mighty, holy God being displayed through the apostles, wonders and signs being performed. And that phrase, through the apostles, is an important one because it shows this idea of secondary agency. In other words, they weren't the primary actors or doers of these amazing deeds. They're the secondary actors. The primary agent in this is the Holy Spirit who is accomplishing and performing these works through the apostles. And what this tells us is simply this, that this is, and this is very important for us to understand, this is the continued work of Jesus. What Luke says, Luke who authored Acts, he says at the beginning of, of the book of Acts, he says, I wrote the first narrative, which is Luke's gospel, the gospel of Luke. I wrote the first narrative about all that Jesus began to do and teach, implying that what he is about to write in the book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do and teach. Only this time, he's gonna be doing it through the apostles and through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I believe part of the reason why the church in America is struggling is that for the sake of not being perceived as weirdos, as those who look strange to the world or simply not to be disliked by the world, we've domesticated Jesus. We've, we've toned him down. We've, we've softened things a little bit. Which what we find out is that it simply doesn't work. It's not good for us to do that and it's not good for the world that we try to do that because we end up missing out on the grandness and the greatness of who God is. And what would our churches look like if we retrieved a sense of awe and wonder for the Lord? If we got that back, if that was just a, a part of who we are, we try to keep everything tame, we try to keep everything under control, and I think we miss out on so much because of that. But what if we could retrieve that sense of awe and wonder for our Lord? Mutual wonder is what they experienced. In verses 44 and 45, we see mutual concern. 
These verses say this, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, before we talk about what this means, I wanna talk very, very briefly about what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that everyone is exactly the same. It doesn't mean we all look the same. It doesn't mean we all act the same. It doesn't mean we make the, all the same exact choices about how we handle certain things. There's a unity, but that doesn't mean uniformity. Secondly, it's not coercive. No one was forced into generosity. As a matter of fact, it's kind of a, it's a contradiction in terms. You can't force someone to be genuinely generous. You just can't do it because generosity flows out of a, of a willing heart. So it's not uniformity, it's not coercion. So what does it mean? It means this, it means there was love for each other. They cared about each other. There was mutual concern. Love is the New Testament law and it's demonstrated in generosity, in holding your possessions loosely. And not holding tightly to the things of this world. An old church father named Tertullian in 197 AD wrote a letter to the Roman authorities to plead for justice for the church and to stand up for the gospel of Jesus in the face of cruel opposition that the church faced. Christians were considered in that time completely out of touch with reality. They were looked on with suspicion because of their so-called strange beliefs. Not too far removed, are we? Still the same in a lot of ways. But he points out something that is one of, one of kind of the greatest disparities between the church and the world, between Christians and the non-Christian world. And he said, it, he said it this way. He said, it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many in the pagan world to put a brand on us or to call us, to label us a certain way. The pagans say, see how they love one another? For the pagans themselves are animated by mutual hatred. In other words, they only care about themselves. But look at those Christians. They, see how they love one another? How the Christians are ready even to die for one another. For the pagans would sooner kill someone than to die for them. Do you see the difference? Around this same time in the Roman Empire, infanticide was allowed and what that meant is, is that if a family, if a, if a mom had a baby and the family decided they didn't want that baby, you know what they could do? They could throw it in the trash. Does that not sound horrifying and awful? It is. You could throw it away. And Christians were known to come along and to rescue these babies and if they were still living they would adopt them and if the baby had already passed they would give it a proper burial to honor the dignity and the personhood of this child because they loved because they loved and it set them apart do you want to look different in this world do you want to have a unique flavor in this fallen world then listen church love one another Love being New Testament law. Remember the new command that Jesus gave his disciples right before his death in John 13, 34. He says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
And that's what we see in the church right here, this mutual concern one for another. This love, they cared. They took care of each other. So there's mutual devotion, there's mutual wonder, there's mutual concern. And then finally, verse 46, this idea of a public faith in a private fellowship. Look at verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. Now, real quickly, let's, let's look at this because it appears, and you can see this in Acts chapter three, that they met um, some of the time, at least, in the area of the temple called Solomon's Colonnade. It was a part of the temple where all sorts of people could come in and gather. Now, as you go further and further into the temple, there, there are different restrictions on who could actually go further into the temple. But in, out, in the outer courts right here in Solomon's Colonnade, all kinds of people, Jew, Gentile, those who were ceremonially clean or unclean, all could gather in that place. And that's where they would gather. That's where they would gather. Now, obviously, we don't gather in exactly the same way, the same way that the early church did, but the implication is clear that their faith was public. Their faith was public. So we go to work every day. Students are about to go back to school. We're gonna have sports and recreation and all kinds of other activities going on, but going to the restaurant, any of those places, is your faith with you when you go to those places? Do you take it with you? Or do you keep your faith private? Our faith is to be public. One thing that's so interesting to me, they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. They were happy people. They were joyful people, a people pleased with the life they'd been granted by Jesus Christ. And so the exhortation here is simply this, that our faith would be the same outdoors as it is indoors. That it would be the same in public as it is in private. Because that's what we see in the early church here. That's their function. That's what they did. That's how they lived because of the gospel. They, that's what they built on the foundation of the gospel. And finally, our third main, our, our third characteristic marking the life of the church. We'll see this in verse 47, and I'll be quick here. The fruit of the church extends upward, outward, and inward. Look at verse 47, it says, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. See, the fruit of the church extends upward in praise to God. All we do, all you do as a church ought to ultimately resound in praise to God. It ought to glorify God. And if it doesn't, we need to take a long, hard look at what it is we're doing and ask the question, why are we doing this? If it doesn't terminate on praise, on glory to God. The old Westminster Catechism, the first question says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. And so are we living in such a way that our lives resound in praise to God? Then outward in public favor 
It says they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Do those outside the church look at us? Do they look at you? Do they see that they can't help but find themselves glad that we're here, even if they wished it wasn't so? Think, I want you to think about this and consider this, and I, I believe I know the answer to this, but if Vaughn Forest ceased to exist as a church, would the surrounding community be better off or worse off? I'm sure I know the answer to this. I know what you've been doing this past week. And there's, a, there's I'm sure, a, a positive answer that you go, yeah, this place, the area that we're in would be worse off if we weren't here. That's a really good thing. It means they're better off because you are here. And look, the world may not like you. The world may not like us. The world may think we're weird. They may think we're strange, whatever. But we should live in such a way that they go, I'm still glad that they're here. I'm still glad that they're here. Public favor. And then the fruit extends inward in providential growth. Y'all, the church does not grow on its own. You can't make the church grow, and I can't make the church grow. Only God can make the church grow. The Lord is the one who causes it to grow. It says the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. But here's what I believe. Like Paul talks about Paul and Apollos. Paul planted, Apollos watered. I can't remember, maybe it's the other way around. But either way, they go, hey, we're, we're nothing in this whole thing. We're just, we're just trying to be faithful. It is God who causes the growth. Man, and I just, I just trust and I just believe that if you will find your foundation as a church, and I believe you do, that if you will continue to find it to be the gospel, and if you will find yourself functioning with this mutual devotion, this wonder, taking your faith public, not just private, doing both though and having a concern for each other where you love one another, that you will find this to be true, that it will resound in praise to God, that you enjoy the favor of those around us and that you will see God bring growth. I just encourage you Commit yourself to this place. Commit yourself to this place. Find your heart, find your life here, serve here. Let this be the place where you go, those are my people. Those are my people. I'm with them and they're with me. You need that, especially as you enter into this fall season, things are about to get ramped up and get really, really busy. Make the commitment that we will be devoted to this fellowship. And we're gonna love them and we're gonna be loved back. Do that, church. And you will find that it pleases God and you probably find yourself actually pleased in it too. Let that be who we are and what we do as a church and trust God to bring the fruit. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we're grateful for your grace, your kindness that leads us to repentance. We're thankful for the foundation of the gospel. We're thankful for who Jesus Christ is, for what he's done, for the life that we have in him. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in you, Lord, that they would turn away from their sin, that they would put their faith in you and that they would find themselves as part, being brought into the family as a new brother or sister in Christ. 
Lord, for the rest of us here, Lord, help us to remind each other of the gospel constantly. Lord, help us to be devoted to your word, to one another, to prayer. And Lord, help us to take that faith public. We thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.